Good morning. Welcome, Grace Christian Fellowship, both locally and globally. I'm really glad you're with us today because we're going to uh, continue with our survey of Spain and Portugal, Roman Catholic empires in the New World. Okay, if you recall from last time, King Ferdinand II of Aragon had married Queen Isabella I of Castile in 1469, uniting Spain and finishing the Reconquista. So all the Jews are kicked out, all the Muslims are kicked out, and now Spain and Portugal are these great nations, European in orientation, Roman Catholic as, as it relates to religion, and they are on essentially a large crusade, not just to, not just having reclaimed Spain and Portugal, but they want to spread their gospel through the entire world. They want to go into all the world and basically conquer it. <laughs> Christopher Columbus, every school boy and girl knows about Christopher Columbus. He was, of course, commissioned by Ferdinand and Isabella to find a westward trade route to the East Indies in Asia in 1492. And he did have a successful voyage across the Atlantic, uh, but he reached the Caribbean islands. He did not, he thought he was gonna end up in what is today India or uh, that part of the world, Southeast Asia. Um, but instead, he reached what uh, has often come to be called the West Indies, or the Caribbean. So thus began the European exploration and conquest of the Americas, although Columbus remained convinced that he had reached the Far East. He never believed that he was in the New World. Um, kind of odd, but... That's what he thought. Financed initially by the crown of Castile and spearheaded by the Spanish conquistadors, the Americas were invaded and incorporated into the Spanish empire. With the exception of Brazil, British America, and some small regions in South America and the Caribbean, the crown created civil and religious structures to administer this vast territory. The main motivations for colonial expansion were profit through resource extraction and the spread of Catholicism through indigenous conversions. Whoops. There we go. This is a really important map. Um, this shows you the areas that were under Spanish and Portuguese control in 1790. Now this is skipping a little bit ahead in time, but this is basically the extent to which the Spanish and the Portuguese in effect owned the New World. They owned all of South America, Central America, and a large chunk of North America. That was under their control. Uh, so from 1492, and of course along with this, there's huge uh, waves of emigration from Spain, from the Iberian Peninsula into the New World. From 1492 to 1832, considered the colonial era approximately 1.86 or almost 2 million Spaniards emigrated to the New World and I don't know how many Portuguese, a lot. From 1850 to 1950, another 3.5 million Spaniards emigrated to the Americas. Roseanne. What's the difference between the green on the map and the blue? 
sorry, I should have said that. So you probably can't see the Iberian Peninsula very well up on, it's in the uh, top right-hand corner. Um, Spain is uh, navy blue and Portugal is green. So yeah, and um, the map is in Spanish and Portuguese. There's no English on there, so. Uh, but you know, you can kind of, you know, hopefully you know your world geography enough to know we're talking about North and South America. Um, and uh, also on this map, in, in the lower, lower left-hand corner is the old world. And again, this may not be easy for you to see, um, but um, there are regions in Africa and Asia where the Portuguese and the Spanish have made, you know, colonial, they've taken colonial territory. By contrast, the indigenous population plummeted by an estimated 80% in the first century and a half following Columbus's voyages. The decline in native populations was caused primarily by the spread of disease, forced labor, and slavery for resource extraction, acculturation, and missionization. The goal of the Spanish in the New World could be summarized as the search for gold, glory, and God. The conquistadors or soldiers were looking for gold and glory in battle. The Roman Catholic missionaries, mainly Jesuits, were seeking to convert the pagan natives. And uh, what you see here, this is a, um, a graph that basically shows what happened in Mexico uh, starting from about 1520 smallpox was introduced by the Europeans. And then there was another disease, uh, I'm probably gonna butcher the pronunciation, Kukolitsli, which was a hemorrhagic fever similar to Ebola. Um, so the population was severely, the native population I should say, was severely impacted. And of course many Spanish and poor, many of the, the conquistadors and, and soldiers and so forth, uh, you know, got sick too. Um, there, was, there was a lot of illness. Um, and, but mainly the indigenous populations were wiped out because just as we have seen with SARS-CoV-19 today, uh, a disease that comes to a population for which that population has no immunity of any kind, the impact is devastating. The Native American population in Mexico declined by an estimated 90%, reduced to about one to 2.5 million people, uh, whereas before it had been over 20 million. So, and this is counting from the beginnings of Spanish colonization to the early 17th century. Again, the main cause was disease. Unfortunately, Mexico was also plagued by drought during this period. The relationship between the Spanish colonization and the Catholicization of the Americas is inextricable. The missions created by members of Catholic orders were located anywhere the missionaries found local population. Missions facilitated the expansion of the Spanish Empire through the religious conversions of the indigenous peoples occupying those areas. The Spanish missions permitted assimilation between Spaniards and the native pop population, producing a new blended culture in Latin America. 
There were no laws or restrictions uh, for Europeans to intermarry and uh, make new families with the indigenous people. Um, and I should note that a lot of the people that the Spanish and Portuguese found were essentially agriculture-oriented, uh, agriculture um, relatively low level of civilization. And when these European conquerors came with their horses and their guns and their swords and all the other stuff they had to wage war, they could not mount um, any kind of defense. Um, they were easily overtaken. The exception were the Incas and the Aztecs, the Aztecs in Mexico and the Incas in Peru. Now, in those cases, basically, the Spanish just killed them and wiped them out. Um, they destroyed those civilizations. The letters and reports sent to the Spanish crown by the priests that accompanied the first Spanish expeditions spoke of the good and innocent Indians. This deeply touched the heart of Queen Isabel of Castile, who instructed the missionary priests to convert and baptize the indigenous population. Isabel was against slavery and proclaimed that all peoples that were under the subject of the Castilian crown could not be enslaved in most situations. Many clergy, again Roman Catholic uh, predominantly, ventured to the Americas to preach what they felt was a pure form of Christianity and to redeem the souls of the indigenous people. Although the Spanish did not want, generally, to enslave the indigenous populations, they needed workers for agriculture and mining. Spain had a precedent for slavery as an institution since it, it had existed in Spain itself since the times of the Roman Empire. And this was continued, uh, slavery was a common practice for the Arabs and Berbers, the Muslims who ruled the Iberian Peninsula uh, for a significant part of its history. Slavery also existed among Native Americans of both Meso or Middle America and South America. So slavery, I, and you know, people, um, talk about the fact that America was founded on slavery. It was, you know, it had a, a innocent, in essence, an illegitimate um, beginning because of that. But I would say, if you look more broadly, slavery, unfortunately, has been a common practice in many, many cultures throughout the world. It was commonly accepted in the old world. And of course, it was exported to the new world, and yet, the native populations were practicing slavery as well. It was common practice for these Native Americans to, you know, various tribes would wage war with each other, and anybody who was taken as a prisoner of war would become a slave. With the rise of sugar cultivation as an export product in the Caribbean, Spaniards increasingly utilized enslaved African people for labor on commercial plantations. And We'll, have, uh, we'll be talking more about this later, but I do want to take a look at the Treaty of Tordesillas, and Lourdes, you could probably pronounce that much better than I can, um, so I know I'm butchering it, but the Treaty of Tordesillas was signed at Tordesillas in Spain on June 7th, 1494, and authenticated or also signed at Setubal, Portugal. 
uh, that same year. It divided the newly discovered lands outside Europe between the Portuguese Empire and the Spanish Empire, the Crown of Castile, along a meridian 370 leagues, or approximately 1,110 miles, west of the Cape Verde Islands off the west coast of Africa. That line of demarcation was about halfway between the Cape Verde Islands and the islands entered by Christopher Columbus on his first voyage named in the treaty as Sipangu, Cuba, and Antilia, which is today Hispaniola. Okay, so basically what the Spanish and the Portuguese did was they divided up the world. And, <laughs> you know, you didn't know this probably. Um, <laughs> at one time, the Spanish said, we're going to rule this half of the world, and you Portuguese, you can rule the other half. Now, um, I don't know how, yeah, you can, you can probably see that map pretty well. Um, notice that the, um, the area of the North Atlantic up by Europe is unclaimed, because the fact was the Spanish and Portuguese were not going to be able to um, stop Northern Europeans from, uh, you know, conducting their own uh, seafaring uh, activities. And so they couldn't really lay claim to that area, but the rest of the world, they divided up. And the plan was that Portugal would simply uh, colonize and incorporate most of the old world into its empire, and Spain would take most of the new world for its empire. Now you can see, um, over, over on the far right there, mm -hmm. South America is kind of cut through by that line of demarcation. So Portugal had a foothold in South America. And without getting into all of the details, I mean, that would be a study all by itself, the Portuguese basically were able to take Brazil and other portions of South America. Portugal and Spain largely respected this treaty, as you would expect, but the other European powers did not sign the treaty and generally ignored it, particularly those that became Protestant after the Reformation. Indigenous, in other words, non-European, largely non-Christian nations did not acknowledge the treaty. It became the source of the discovery doctrine and has been a source of ongoing tension regarding land ownership into modern times, cited as recently as the 2005 United States Supreme Court case, Cheryl v. Oneida Nation. So if you want a homework assignment, look up Discovery Doctrine, just Google it, and you can Google this court case, and I think you'll be very surprised at what you find in there. On June 2nd, 1537, Pope Paul III issued the bull Sublimus Deus, condemning and forbidding the slavery of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. The bull also proclaimed that the Native Americans were fully rational human beings who have rights to freedom and private property. The papal ecclesiastical letter, Pastoral Officium, provided that anyone who enslaved or stole from Native Americans would be excommunicated. Jesuit leaders condemned the right of conquerors to despoil the conquered of their property and freedom. Despite the seeming good intentions of the Spanish toward the indigenous peoples, the fact remained that, that Spain was there to function as the Roman Empire had in the old world. 
Just as the Roman Catholic Church had grown atop the pagan empire it, it replaced, the Roman Catholic Church in the Americas became one of the most dominant features of colonialization. The Patronata Real, or royal patronage, was a series of papal bulls constructed in the 15th and early 16th century that set the secular relationship between the Spanish crown and the Catholic Church. So again, as we've seen in other studies, you know, this was the case in Europe throughout its, most of its history up, in, up until modern times, and that is the church and state are basically one and the same. There are secular rulers and there are religious rulers, and the scope of their authority and what they can do um, overlap significantly. The Patronata Real clarified the Crown's responsibilities to promote the conversion of the indigenous Americans to Catholicism, the sending and selection of missionaries to America, the collection of the tithe, the power to fix and modify the boundaries of the diocese in America, the power to veto the election of archbishoprics or bishoprics, and the right of presentation. The Patronato Real determined the founding of churches, convents, hospitals, and schools, as well as the appointment and payment of secular clergy. Just as the religious and political establishments of medieval and early modern Europe were inextricably intertwined, so too the Roman Catholic Church and the Spanish political structures were fused together in the Americas. Spanish political systems also incorporated indigenous political structures, much as the Romans had allowed puppet kings to rule in their conquered lands. Secular clergy is differentiated uh, from the religious or the monastic orders. So a secular clergyman would simply be like a par you know, if you go at the lowest level, a parish priest. He's not part of a, um, uh, a convent, or not a convent, um, a monastery. He's not a monk. He's just a priest in a local parish church, and there are bishops above him, archbishops, monsignors, cardinals, and so forth. That's, I know that sounds weird, <laughs> that the secular clergy, okay? The religious clergy were monks and nuns who were part of orders like the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Jesuits, and we will be talking about those three groups as we go. Um, and to us, it might not seem like a huge distinction, but it was important to Roman Catholics. Oh, and I should also mention, and we will see this later too, so some uh, monks were also priests. Um, some monk, for example, only an ordained priest could it administer the mass, okay? And there are some religious uh, orders in which those monks cannot perform the mass because they're not ordained priests. So, but uh, a monastic can also be an ordained priest and therefore celebrate mass. So again, to us that seems, you know, like a, a distinction without a difference perhaps, but that's, that's how it worked. Um, now, I also wanna say, think back to the New Testament. Who was the king when Jesus was living? It was one of the Herods, 
okay? There's King Herod who uh, slays all the, um, all the children age two and under because the wise men have come to him and said they are looking for the king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east, and King Herod is like, that's not me. They must be talking about another king. I've got to get rid of this king. Herod, uh, and, and this, this is a whole other study, but which I can't go into any of the details on, but the Herods and the other members of those ruling families were essentially half Jews, but they, the, so the Jews were allowed to have their own king. The Romans allowed that, but that king was a puppet under, you know, and basically had to do whatever the Romans told him to do. But the Romans did that to placate these, and, and they did that in other nations too. They did that to placate the conquered peoples, to basically say, well, yes, you're all part of our empire, and ultimately you have to do whatever we tell you, and you have to send us money and food and all of the other stuff that we want to extract from you. But look, we, ha we give you your own king, so be happy. <laughs> yeah, live with <laughs> essentially. <clears throat> okay, so now we can talk about the Franciscans. Okay, so the Franciscan order, a group of monks, uh, the Franciscan missionaries were the first to arrive in New Spain in 1523, uh, following Cortez in Mexico, and they soon began to establish missions. And you know, they had come from a land where you had, you know, the, the medieval European village. You had, you know, the, 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 the castle of the Lord, and you had around that the village, and you had all the people who were tenants of that Lord, and there was a church, and the Lord and the rulers in the church, you know, were very closely connected. And uh, sometimes the Lord might be a bishop himself. Um, and so these missions that were founded by these European Roman Catholics, you know, they got their idea for how the mission should look like from the medieval European towns that they had come from. Okay, um, if you've never heard of the Order of St. Francis of Assisi, it was founded in the early 13th century. And the Franciscan order throughout its history has been very active in evangelization, continues to do that to this day. And the uh, painting here, I believe the, um, the painter was uh, a native Mexican person, unno name unknown, uh, but painted a portrait of Fray Pedro de Gante. And they, he was dubbed the first teacher of the new world. So in the early 1500s, people like this Franciscan monk were coming to uh, the New World and begin to, beginning to establish these missions. And today, there are missions that are preserved um, throughout the United States. You can go to, oh, the desert southwest, California especially, and you can see preserved missions. They've, you know, preserved the buildings. And essentially it was like a little village and there was the church and the school and you might have a hospital, you know, a separate building for the sick. And, um, you know, surrounding that were the lands that the Indians were to cultivate. So the Indians were to learn uh, Spanish. 
They were to learn about Christianity and be converted, and they were to learn agricultural methods and different crafts. And essentially, um, you know, the Franciscans and the other orders did this as well. They were to live in these missions and essentially become Europeanized. No more hunter-gatherer stuff, essentially. <laughs> the Franciscan missionary groups were split up and sent throughout present-day Mexico. In addition to their primary goal of spreading Christianity, the missionaries studied the native languages, taught children to read and write, and taught adults trades, such as carpentry and ceramics. And in fact, perhaps the only way these indigenous languages were preserved was because the monks learned these languages, created alphabets for them, and wrote them down. Um, so that later, you know, there were certainly, uh, and of course much later, the scriptures were available eventually, partly because of the, um, the work in languages that the monks did. There was a clear goal of changing and shaping the indigenous communities to conform to European standards of life and work. However, some Franciscan groups were not successful due to the emphasis on monastic practices like contemplation. So if you're gonna be an evangelist, you're gonna be busy all day long. You don't have time to sit in the monastery, read the scriptures, and contemplate. But if you're a monk, that's what you're supposed to be doing. So there was this kind of tension for this particular order, especially you know, trying to adhere to the to traditional practices of their order, um, and yet, do the work of evangelization as they saw it. And once again, the Jesuits. <clears throat> now, again, keep in mind, the Jesuits were not the cloistered, reclusive monks that the Franciscans and some of the orders were, other orders were. They had been established from the start for the purpose of evangelization and spreading the gospel. So when the new world opened up, they were there big time. They had a widespread impact between their arrival in the new world from about 1570 until their expulsion in 1767. In the southeastern part of South America, the Jesuits followed a widespread Spanish practice of creating settlements called reductions to concentrate the widespread native populations. So again, the indigenous people, if they were not agricultural oriented, if they were indeed hunter-gatherers, they would be living, you know, all they would be following herds of animals, they would be moving about constantly, um, and the Spanish, the Jesuits come, primarily Spanish, and they decide, we're going to settle you down, you're going to learn to live in the mission, you're going to learn to uh, raise crops, we're gonna teach you Spanish, we're gonna teach you the scriptures, you'll become a Christian. Uh, so again, it was very much, uh, you know, we're gonna change your way of life. The Jesuit reductions were protected society in which each family had a house and field, and individuals were clothed and fed in return for work. There were also schools, churches, and hospitals. No Spanish settlers were allowed to live in them, only natives. Oops. 
Father Eusebio Francisco Kino, SJ, by the way, if you ever see a reference made to a Jesuit, um, they will have the letters SJ after their name, means Society of Jesus. Born August 10th, 1645 in Austria, came to what is today parts of Arizona in the U.S. and Sonora State, which is directly south of Arizona, in Mexico in 1687. He was a missionary, geographer, map maker, and astronomer. By the time of his death in 1711, he had established 24 missions and visitas, country chapels or visiting stations throughout the Southwestern Territory. He also established cattle ranches and farms for the indigenous people of this area. And I should also note here that the Europeans, they brought a lot of bad things with them, primarily disease. And, um, you know, if it looked at in one form, you could say, you know, why did they think they had to change, uh, you know, the whole way of life of the Native American peoples. But they brought two things that had a huge impact on the new world, and that was horses and cattle radically changed life in the new world for the indigenous people. Over time, the Jesuits resisted crown control, refusing to pay the tithe on their estates that supported the ecclesiastical hierarchy and came into conflict with bishops. The most prominent example is in Puebla, Mexico, where the bishop was driven out by the Jesuits in 1647. The bishop challenged the Jesuits continuing to hold Indian parishes and function as priests without the required royal licenses. So here are a bunch of monastics who are trying to essentially push out the secular clergy. You know, again, there's that odd phrase, but um, basically the, <laughs> the Jesuits wanted to take over. And eventually the crown of Castile expelled the Jesuits from Spain in the New World in 1767 during the Bourbon reforms. And that, the Bourbon reforms, if you want some homework, Google that. That'll keep you busy for quite a while. <laughs> okay, now the Dominicans. Here's another monastic order that sent evangelists to the New World. The Dominicans were centralized in the Caribbean and in Mexico, and despite a much smaller representation in the Americas than the other monastic groups, had one of the most notable histories of native rights activism. The order of preachers whose members are known as Dominicans, and let me stop right here. Those of you who follow baseball at all, you know that many baseball players on Major League American teams come from the Dominican Republic. Okay, where did that name come from? It came from this group, uh, this monastic order. Um, the Dominicans uh, were a mendicant order, and by that we mean they profess and practice a vow of poverty. And again, they were within the Catholic Church. They were f founded in Toulouse, France by the Spanish priest, St. Dominic in 1216. They have a nickname in Latin, Domini Canis, Hounds of the Lord. So you see Domini Canis, Hounds of the Lord. 
Bartolome de las Casas was a Spanish nobleman who arrived in the West Indies in 1502. He became a land and slave owner. He participated in slave raids and military expeditions against the native Taino of Hispaniola. Now, although the crown of Castile had said, you can't make slaves of the native peoples, they were doing it anyway. Um, but he gradually came to see the wrongs of European colonization. And this is a portrait of Las Casas, um, and his dates are 1484 to 1566. Also, think back, you know, during the same period, what's going on in Europe? Martin Luther. That's, this is the time period we're talking about. In September 1510, a group of Dominican friars arrived in Santo Domingo, led by Pedro de Cordoba. Appalled by the injustices they saw committed by the slave owners against the Indians, they decided to deny slave owners the right to confession. So in other words, your sins, you can't confess your sins, you can't be absolved of sin, you remain in a state of sin. If you die in that state of sin, you're in trouble. Las Casas was among those denied confession for this reason. Despite his conduct as a land and slave owner, Las Casas was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest in 1510, a secular priest, not part of any monastic order yet. Uh, he was the first secular priest ordained in the New World. The Dominicans, however, continued their protest against injustices. In December 1511, a Dominican preacher, Fray Antonio de Montesinos, preached this fiery sermon in Santo Domingo. Tell me, by what right of justice do you hold these Indians in such a cruel and horrible servitude? On what authority have you waged such detestable wars against these people who dealt quietly and peacefully on their own lands? Wars in which you have destroyed such an infinite number of them by homicides and slaughters never heard of before. Why do you keep them so oppressed and exhausted without giving them enough to eat or curing them of the sicknesses they incur from the excessive labor you give them and they die, or rather you kill them in order to extract and acquire gold every day. Las Casas continued to work as a priest and chaplain for the Spanish armies, and he witnessed the conquest of Cuba. You know, it's one thing for a bunch of Europeans back in Europe to make laws prohibiting slavery in the New World. It's a whole other thing to make that a reality. And obviously the Spanish are thousands of miles away from Spain. They're thousands of miles away from the Pope in the Vatican in Rome, uh, and they're doing what they want. And the slaughter of indigenous people was especially severe in the Caribbean. Las Casas witnessed many atrocities committed by Spaniards against the native Saboni and Guanahatabe peoples. He later wrote, I saw here cruelty on a scale no living being has ever seen or expects to see. So this is a man who's, you know, this is a cruel age. And yet he's stymied, he's stumped by all of this cruelty that is beyond anything he has ever seen. 
1514, Las Casas was studying a passage in the book Ecclesiasticus or Sirach in the Apocrypha, uh, Ecclesiasticus 34, 18 through 22 for a Pentecost sermon and pondering its meaning. It was at this point that he came to see that everything that the Spanish had done in the New World was illegal and a great injustice. And this is the portion of this book from the Apocrypha that he was looking at. To whom doth he look and who in his strength? The eyes of the Lord are upon them that fear him. He is their powerful protector and strong stay, a defense from the heat and a cover from the sun at noon a preservation from stumbling and a help from falling. He raiseth up the soul and enlighteneth the eyes and giveth health and life and blessing. And these two verses that I have bolded um, are perhaps the most significant. The offering of him that sacrificeth of a thing wrongfully gotten is stained and the mockeries of the unjust are not acceptable. The Lord is only for them that wait upon him in the way of truth and justice. Las Casas made up his mind to give up his slaves and encomienda plantation and started to preach that other colonists should do the same. Now this is, okay, let's stop and think about, you're gonna give up your slaves, you're gonna give up all your land. This would be like if you had your house paid off and you just said, I'm going to walk away from it. Someone else can have it. You know, my 60000 $80,000, $100,000, $200,000 house. I have gotten it wrongfully. I'm going to give it to someone else. When his preaching met with resistance, he realized that he would have to go to Spain to fight there against the enslavement and abuse of the native people. In the winter of 1515, he arrived in Spain, hoping to meet with King Ferdinand. Ferdinand died in January of 1516, and Las Casas was not successful in persuading the Castilian crown hierarchy of the need for reforms in the New World. In 1516, Las Casas wrote an account of the situation in the Indies, uh, again, the Caribbean and his proposed remedies titled Memorial de Remedios para las Indias. In this early work, Las Casas advocating importing black slaves from Africa to relieve the suffering Indians. He later retracted this idea, becoming an advocate for the manumission and emancipation of African slaves in the colonies as well. Initially, Las Casas' first concern was not to end slavery as an institution, but to end the physical abuse and suffering of the Indians. In keeping with the legal and moral doctrine of the time, Las Casas believed that slavery could be justified if it was the result of a just war. In Roman Catholic thinking, there were wars that could be considered just wars. In other words, um, you know, there's unjust war where you simply, you know, have no, uh, no validity for the, the aggression that you're committing, and then there are just wars, wars that can be justified uh, ethically. Internationally, this was at a time when many nations believed that enemy combatants captured in war could justifiably be kept as slaves. 
At this time, Las Casas assumed that the enslavement of Africans was justified. Las Casas had limited success in convincing the Spanish crown and the Habsburg Emperor Charles V of the need for thorough reform of Spanish New World government. In 1522, he tried to launch a new kind of peaceful colonialism on the coast of Venezuela, but this venture failed. He sought to bring Spanish peasants to the New World. After all, Spain is, is and, and most of, the, of Europe is filled with peasants. Uh, why not bring them to the New World, where they could have small farms, they could engage in small-scale farming and agriculture. It would be a, a type of colonialization that didn't rely on resource depletion and Indian labor. These ventures were similar to the British system of creating private companies supported by private investors that would establish settlements in the Spanish territories not dependent on slaves. Las Casas's ventures were not successful and were repeatedly undermined by both the Spanish aristocracy and by powerful Roman Catholic churchmen. By 1522, Las Casas gave up attempting reforms. He entered the Dominican monastery of Santa Cruz in Santo Domingo as a novice, and then took holy vows as a Dominican friar in 1523. Although he was cloistered for much of the time, he oversaw the construction of a monastery in Puerto Plata on the north coast of Hispaniola, subsequently serving as prior of the convent. In 1536, Las Casas went to Guatemala in hopes of continuing to evangelize the Aztecs. Also in that year, Las Casas went to Mexico to participate in a series of discussions and debates among the hierarchy of the Dominican and Franciscan orders. The two orders had very different approaches to the conversion of the Indians. The Franciscans used a method of mass conversion, sometimes baptizing many thousands of Indians in a day. This method was championed by prominent Franciscans, such as Toribio de Benevente, known as Motolinia. Las Casas wrote a treatise called On the Only Way of Conversion, based on the missionary principles he had used in Guatemala in 1536. Las Casas made many enemies among the Franciscans for arguing that conversions made without adequate understanding were invalid. As a direct result of the debates between the Dominicans and Franciscans and spurred on by Las Casas' treaties, Pope Paul III issued the bull Sublimus Deus, which stated that the Indians were rational beings and should be brought peacefully to the faith as such. So instead of just baptizing a whole lot of people who don't even really understand what's being done. Las Casas advocated for truly preaching the gospel to these people. Las Casas returned to Guatemala in 1537, wanting to employ his new method of conversion based on two principles, to preach the gospel to all men and treat them as equals, and to assert that conversion must be voluntary and based on knowledge and understanding of the faith. It was important for Las Casas that this method be tested without meddling from secular colonists. He chose a territory in the heart of Guatemala away from any previous colonies. 
Las Casas also wanted to evangelize an indigenous people who had little to no contact with the Spanish and who were considered fierce and bellicose or warlike. Las Casas's group of friars established a Dominican presence in three towns in Guatemala. Through the efforts of Las Casas's missionaries, the so-called land of war came to be called Verapaz, true peace. Las Casas's strategy was to teach Christian songs to merchant Indian Christians who then ventured into the area. In this way, he was successful in converting several native chiefs and in building several churches in the territory named Alta Verapaz, now a state in present-day Guatemala. Las Casas later became a bishop in Mexico, but he never stopped working for humane treatment of the Native Americans and reforms of Spanish rule in the New World. His work earned him many enemies, both in Europe and in Central and South America. His last act as Bishop of Chiapas, Mexico, was writing a confessionario, a manual for the administration of the sacrament of confession in his diocese. Las Casas still refused absolution to unrepentant and exploitative plantation owners. His enemies saw his writings as, in essence, of, uh, of the deni a denial of the legitimacy of Spanish rule of its colonies, and hence a form of treason. The leg of legacy of Las Casas and that of the Roman Catholic priests, Franciscans, Dominicans, and other members of other Catholic religious orders in the New World show the tension and difficulties inherent within evangelism into non-Christian, non-European territories and among people who have very different cultures and religions. Can the Christian gospel be proclaimed without cultural and political imperialism and colonization behind it? So that's a, a rhetorical question, but not necessarily only rhetorical. So that's a question we can continue to ask ourselves to this day. So that concludes what I have. Um, you know, I really didn't go into the Portuguese. The history's pretty much the same. Uh, and the Portuguese often were very ruthless in their exploitation of the indigenous people of Brazil and other parts of South America. And the Portuguese, most of them were just looking for resources, gold, silver, um, precious gems, you know, treasure that they could bring back um, to their homeland. Um, the history of Brazil, it, that's a huge topic in and of itself. Again, if you want some homework, you could study that on your own. Uh, any questions or comments? All righty. <laughs>